This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines we see. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the airwaves today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Jeff Smith, filling in for Josh King. I'm a professor of urban policy at the New School in New York City and a former Missouri state senator. Wherever you go these days, tablet computers are all the rage. But did you ever imagine that the next frontier for tablets is the penitentiary? That's right. An innovative new startup will be rolling out pilot programs in the next year to put tablets in the hands of inmates. They say the tablets could be the stone that kills not one, not two, but three birds, reducing recidivism, making prisons safer, and saving taxpayer money. Is it all too good to be true? Is it possible to overcome the difficult polyoptics of giving tablets to inmates? And can the political left and right wings, who have formed an unlikely alliance on the NSA scandal, come together again with humanitarians and budget hawks coming together around prison reform? Today, we'll ask the founder and CEO of American Prison Data Systems, Chris Grew. After that, we'll be following an ironclad rule of political junkiedom. The best elections to speculate about are the ones furthest away. In that spirit, we'll be joined by two of the nation's biggest junkies, Peter Hamby of CNN and Dave Cantonese of The Run 2016, to analyze how recent events from the NSA scandal to immigration reform to landmark Supreme Court decisions, are already scrambling the 2016 field. With that, let's get started. Chris, welcome to Polyoptics. Jeff, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, why don't we start by just hearing a little bit more about American Prison Data Systems and how it was conceived. Well, American Prison Data Systems is a technology startup here in New York City, and our goal is to bring... Uh, all of the promise of the digital revolution to one of the last places in America that it hasn't reached yet, which is behind prison walls. And the idea is that by bringing technology into prisons and giving access to inmates, uh, we can uh, accomplish a couple of really important goals. We can make prisons safer for the inmates as well as importantly for the people who work there every day. Um, We can uh, cut costs. We can uh, deliver cost savings to the folks who run prisons. And we can really make a difference with regards to recidivism, the astonishingly high rate at which people who are released from prisons end up back in jail. So I know, Chris, as a country, we spend about $75 billion every year just on corrections. Tell us how your product could could save money uh, and tell us specifically how it could reduce recidivism. Well, with regards to uh, the rest of our lives in the 21st century, we all have experienced ways in which technology has made life uh, better and less expensive. Um, but with regards to prisons particularly, um, Uh, tablet technology can help uh, reduce labor costs with regards to processing inmate mail, for instance. We can replace uh, recreational libraries, which are cost centers in prisons, with things that are better, a digital library, a Kindle-style solution. Legal resources, which everyone uh, in prison is entitled to have access to, are now being delivered in antiquated and expensive hard copy-based ways. And um, with regards to educational products, um, prisons are tied to an antiquated brick-and-mortar style of instruction, which is not only 
uh, not scalable but expensive and not very effective. So among those, uh, those cost centers, we see a real opportunity um, to improve the cost uh, structure of prisons. But by far the most important aspect of this is fighting recidivism. The really expensive part of, of incarcerating so many people in this country is that so many of them come back. What, about uh, 60% of all inmates across all levels uh, end up reoffending within three years, I think? Within three years. Okay. Um, and uh, hard numbers there, um, uh, within three years, 43% end up back in prisons and 60% reoffend. And with a longer timeline, maybe as many as 10, When in a country where we're spending on average $30,000 a year to incarcerate someone, and here in New York, $60,000 a year to reincarcerate someone, uh, it, it makes a big difference. So even very small uh, improvements in um, and, and recidivism can deliver huge cost savings to states. So one of the things we do here on, on polyoptics is we talk about um, how things look. Yes. And it doesn't look very good to your average voter to say, hey, you might not be able to afford uh, a new tablet, but we're going to give one to each of these inmates in this prison. How do you respond to a criticism like that? Well, I think there's always been um, a, a lot of political sensitivity to the idea of giving goodies to baddies. Um, <laughs> the idea of uh, bringing technology into prisons um, may seem as though it's bringing a luxury item. I, I think there are a couple of things that are changing, however, which is uh, smartphones, the fastest adopted technology in the history of mankind, uh, tablet technology. I, I, Android tablets are becoming cheaper and more ubiquitous. They're part of everyday life, and I think over time they will stop being perceived as you know, fancy items. Um, but most importantly, the relatively minor expense of giving a tablet to someone in prison is countervailed by enormous cost savings. Um, uh, taxpayers should be happy that we're giving um, Android tablets to inmates um, because in the end it will uh, put much, much more money back in the pocket of the state. So in order to make this happen, Chris, you're going to need government support at some level, uh, whether that's through state legislative bodies, whether it's through the executive branch at the state or federal level. Uh, you're going to need someone to, to give an entree to heads of state department uh, of corrections to actually make this happen. Given that, you're going to have to deal with partisan politics to some extent. Have you thought through the ways that you get both liberals and conservatives to on board here? Yes, and I think that we're helped a little bit by the zeitgeist. Um, uh, at the moment, um, correctional spending accounts for six to seven percent of the discretional spending in in, um, in an average state. In some places like California, it's ten percent of the budget. Um, the optics of um, of prison reform um, may be challenging, but we have headlines now of new prisons being opened in places like Philadelphia at the, in the same newspaper announcing that 200 teachers are being laid off and schools are being closed because wow. those are uh, the, the trade-offs, the opportunity costs of this kind of spending. So I think there really is a pragmatic left-right coalition developing that understands that our spending on corrections is just out of control and it is going to eat away um, uh, our ability to spend on things that we all believe are more productive uses of our money. It's interesting that you raised the, the juxtaposition of the school closings with the prison construction. One of the issues that animated me, uh, and in fact, one of the main reasons that I ran for office um, in the first place was to try to address the school-to-prison pipeline. In St. Louis, Missouri, which was uh, my hometown, there was about a 60% dropout rate. And of course, a disproportionate percentage of those students end up in prison. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the relationship between 
helping someone who is already locked up get an education and how that can change their eventual fate? Well, one of the more surprising things I discovered early on in investigating this uh, opportunity in the corrections world was that a shockingly large percentage of Americans don't finish high school. A shockingly large percentage of that cohort ends up in prison at some point or um, the other way around. more than 66% of the folks who are in prison don't have a high school credential or the, the other kinds of skills that they might need to succeed in the outside world. Um, and unfortunately, we release quite a lot of people from prison without helping them achieve um, a high school degree or, or acquire other kinds of skills, which is a shame because we know that when we do, that we can cut recidivism by as much as 50%. And so it's a relatively modest investment to have a huge return, not just in terms of economics for the state, but in, of course, in terms of our society. Every time that someone goes out and reoffends and comes back, then another crime's been committed, and, and unfortunately, another life is, um, is not going in the right direction. Let me ask you a question about actual implementation. Uh, once prisons decide perhaps to adopt these tablets, two authors, two scholars, uh, Jeffrey Pressman and Aaron Wildofsky, wrote a famous book about the model cities programmed in and how it was implemented in San Francisco in the 1960s. They argue that if ground level actors are resistant to a, to a new policy, then it will be very difficult to implement it successfully. I can tell you as a former federal inmate that there was not a lot of enthusiasm on the part of prison administrators or especially guards themselves in doing Mm -hmm. anything to help educate inmates. How do you deal with that? I think one of the things that's interesting about our platform is that it combines things um, in an interesting way that appeals to all of the various constituencies. There are cost savings for the governor's office and the state legislature, which is going to be, of course, obsessed with uh, the spending on corrections. Um, there are also real safety benefits for move and associated with moving to a digital platform. For instance, the promise of uh, of of moderated email in prison uh, could greatly reduce the amount of contraband that comes in through the mail system. Um, It can reduce what um, guards call cell clutter, um, too much paper. And so it can reduce the quantity of contraband as well as the number of places to hide it. Contraband is inexorably connected to violence in prisons because that's part of the economy. So we um, believe that we can compellingly say to corrections officers, this tablet may be good for inmates and you may be ambivalent about that, but it's good for you. It makes it much less likely that you're going to be involved. You're going to be in a violent workplace, um, and corrections officers seem to um, have a, a re- that argument seems to resonate pretty well with corrections officers in our experiences. How do you think APDS and other efforts to to bring uh, educational programming into prisons? How do they fit in to the broader movement to maybe rethink how we incarcerate people in this country? Well, I think that technology and education particularly uh, offer us a real opportunity to think about who needs to be behind bars versus who needs to be um, uh, supported um, or even supervised in the community through parole and probation. Um, If uh, New York State, for instance, it's approximately $60,000 a year to incarcerate someone, $30,000 a year to have them uh, on on parole and about $15,000 a year to have them on probation. So if you have the opportunity to take nonviolent offenders, people who were incarcerated, maybe predominantly because they lacked um, some job skills and didn't have other alternatives or because they weren't working on drug and alcohol issues, and you can move them out of prisons 
uh, use technology and education to um, scaffold them, uh, you have an opportunity to cut costs and improve outcomes and I think end up with a more humane system. That's a great point. You talk about uh, job skills and, and a lot of inmates may not come in with concrete job skills, but I'll tell you in my experience, they have a tremendous amount of sort of entrepreneurial fervor. Um, there's another nonprofit that's uh, it's working sort of in the space that you're working in. It's called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. I'm not sure if you're familiar sure. with them, but they do some fascinating stuff. They bring in senior executives from all over the country into uh, the Cleveland, Texas state prison for six months, help teach them how to write business plans uh, using MBA students throughout the country. Um, and in fact, uh, Baylor, uh, Baylor University certifies uh, or certificates graduates of the program. And then at the end of six months, they all give their pitches to the quote unquote venture capitalists, the executives who are, who are coming in to hear the pitches. Uh, I went down to address their commencement ceremony a few weeks ago and was just absolutely in awe of, of what I saw. And I think it speaks to a larger point, which is that most guys who are locked up really are not that different from you or I or, or most people out there. They have many of the same ambitions and in many cases the same talents that people in the business world or, or other professions have. Has that been your sense as well as you've uh, familiarized yourself with, with this industry and, and this population? Absolutely, and I think it's fascinating. And I've spoken to a couple of people associated uh, with PEP. Um, you know, the truth is that there is an enormous amount of uh, talent incarcerated in, in this country. 2.4 million people, one out of every uh, 100 uh, adults in the United States. Um, and there is a lot of entrepreneurial energy. Um, you know, for better or for worse, there's a lot of risk-taking behavior <laughs> Uh, associated with the people who end up in prison. And risk-taking in a constructive way is a huge part of entrepreneurship. I know that a little bit myself. <laughs> um, and uh, have met quite a number of um, uh, very talented people who either are incarcerated um, or, or have been. Uh, I should say that as part of the mission of APDS uh, in the long run to um, uh, see if we can find some job opportunities for folks who spend time behind bars because I think they may bring that dynamism and that energy and it's really consistent with our mission and our view of the world. Since you talk about the, the long term, the job opportunities for, uh, for folks after they, they come out of prison, what's your vision for where you are uh, in five years and where we are as a country in terms of dealing uh, with, with criminals in the next five to ten years? Well, I think APDS can play uh, an important role in helping to uh, reform and improve um, our enormous, our expensive, and um, our slightly dysfunctional or maybe extremely dysfunctional correctional system. But I have no um, uh, illusions that, you know, by, by itself that APDS is going to turn all of those things around. But I'll talk to you a little bit about what I think we bring. Um, a safe platform for bringing digital content into prisons uh, is... Uh, can be a new kind of superhighway for educational opportunities. And I would be thrilled if five years from now we were a small part of the story of how we really started to get to the issue of recidivism, uh, addressed it through rehabilitation, education, uh, job training, and job placement. And I, I, think that, uh, I think that we've got a good shot at being part of that story. And what would your suggestion be to advocates throughout the country that are working on the ground and in local, you know, municipalities, uh, in state governments, what have you, how would you advise them to talk about this issue? I think that we need to recognize, um, firstly, that um, 
jobs are a huge determinant of whether people succeed when they're released from prison. And we have a very different job market than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. Technology is not just part of our lives, but it's part of our professional future. And we have to bring technology into prisons in safe ways. Uh, I'll tell you where I was, Chris. No one had, no inmate had access to the internet. So there were guys I was locked up with that were there for 15 years or longer and they were about to walk out of that door and they didn't even know how to point or click. So since they're only given enough money for bus fare home Mm -hmm. and they're going to need to find a job pretty quick or unfortunately maybe turn to illegal ways to make money, if you don't even know how to look for a job online, strikes me that it's going to be pretty difficult not to reoffend at some point. You know, one of the reasons why prisons are starting to, um, and I think this will accelerate, be less resistant to the idea of technology is because they are confronting all of the serious problems that come from trying to ignore the digital revolution. A great example is it is almost impossible to look for a job, particularly an entry-level job, by picking up the newspaper and looking for classified ads. That's not where they are any longer. They're on Craigslist. They're on Monster. They're online. And um, to take somebody and uh, and sequester them, put them in prison and say, hey, one of the things you got to do while you're here is look for a job, but you can't go on the internet. Um, and by the way, we're not going to teach you how to go on the internet even after we release you, is to really put them at a disadvantage. And they're already uh, in a situation where that's going to be a challenge. So we need to give them the tools um, to be successful in the world. And that involves having access to technology and familiarity with it. And, and I think that's going to be one of the great benefits derived from our program. Chris, it's always a pleasure to meet social entrepreneurs like you that are uh, trying to do well and do good at the same time. Uh, so it's a privilege to have you on here. Applaud you for what you're doing and uh, hope to see you again soon. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. I'm going to stick around and listen to the rest of the show. I think it'll be great. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jeff Smith here, filling in for Josh King at Polyoptics. I am a urban policy professor at the New School in New York City and former Missouri State Senator. We are joined in our second segment here by Peter Hamby of CNN. Peter is fresh off a Shorenstein Fellowship at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Government up there uh, and is back in Washington. We are also joined by Dave Cantonese. Uh, Dave is the editor-in-chief of The Run 2016, a website devoted to the embryonic stages of the 2016 presidential campaign that is widely read by Washington insiders. Dave, how you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Uh, Peter, you're in Washington. Dave, you are following Rand Paul, I guess, uh, down in South Carolina. Is that right? I am. I'm in uh, Columbia at the moment. Uh, He is not here yet, but he arrives tomorrow. Okay, and and tell us what he's doing on that trip. He is doing a a couple stops. He's doing um, sort of three-city tour, but sort of low-profile events, I'm told, very small, intimate events um, in two cities, uh, Spartanburg and Greenville, where he'll do uh, some small-dollar fundraisers for people just who just want to meet him, and then he'll do a bigger sort of barbecue event in Columbia, um, which is a fundraiser for the party, at 6 o'clock. 
Well, we got to get Jonathan Martin down there for the barbecue, right? Hey, well, you know, he, he is the master at that trade. <laughs> Jonathan Martin, the new uh, New York Times reporter. So speaking of, of Rand Paul being down in South Carolina so early, I've been struck by just how quickly this presidential race has, has gotten off. Obviously, on the Democratic side, the field is, is frozen uh, until Hillary Clinton makes a, a decision. But on the Republican side, just two weeks after Romney lost, you saw Marco Rubio going to Iowa to celebrate Chuck Grassley's birthday. And obviously he's not going and doing that for, for other Republican colleagues, but he wanted to get that head start in Iowa. And yet, arguably the most influential conservative activist in Iowa, radio host Steve Deese, has said recently that given Rubio's role leading the immigration battle, uh, he may as well never even set foot in Iowa. Um, I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts on that. Well, I mean, look... Um Marco Rubio hasn't set foot back in Iowa um, since the fall um, because he is trying to be uh, the, poly, the policy-oriented guy here, sort of carrying the heavy load on immigration reform. There's no question there is a huge risk in him doing this. Um, you know, I just did, sort of did a, a survey on the, on the run 2016 of all the major talkers out there and what they've been saying about him. And we know, uh, you know, Rubio's folks have, have sort of put together an aggressive effort trying to court the right on this immigration bill, why it's it's good for the party, why it will have border security measures that they like. Um, but, you know, w- with an exception of a couple of victories, he still has a pretty uphill climb. And that, you know, includes a lot of conservative activists on the ground in, in Iowa, which you could argue is the most, uh, you know, conservative of the first three um, uh, nominating states. So, um, you know, I think this is a huge gamble for Rubio. You got to, you know, you got to at least tip your hat just as a as a, as a political gamble. This is, this is, you know, he could be taking the easy way out and and not leading this fight, but but he certainly is. And you know, there could be severe uh, political repercussions because of it, um, because you already see, you know, his his potential 2016 rivals, you know, Rand Paul. Ted Cruz, um, you know, they're they're not going to be voting for this immigration bill. It doesn't doesn't seem like it, and you know, it, you can see this issue popping up. You can just you know look into the crystal ball and and look two three years down the road in a potential primary fight that this will be the wedge issue used against Rubio, who is sort of the early presumed uh, front runner. This will be what he has to defend over and over again. It also will be something he has to explain since in twenty. 20- he ran sort of on a conservative plank of this issue and, you know, said that there should be no pathway uh, for, for citizenship for um, illegal immigrants, and that it was basically amnesty, the bill that he's sponsoring now. So he, he not only um, is doing something that they, you know, definitively disagree with, he has flipped his position in a matter of two years. So um, this, uh, you know... It, I don't think we, no one knows, really know how it's going to affect him. I think we do know that this will be an issue if he runs in 2016. Yeah, I'm sort of uh, struck by, I mean, during the 2012 Republican presidential cycle, we saw the sort of short attention spans of the conservative base. You know, every two weeks there was like a different star. And I'm really, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but I am, that Marco Rubio has moved from being the Tea Party outsider guy to, in conversations, you know, whenever... I'm sure this is true with Dave whenever he calls into Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Florida, wherever, and you talk to folks and they mention the kind of uh, the candidates they like and they mention Ron Paul, 
You know, they mentioned Ted Cruz, even Mike Lee. And then Rubio gets lumped in with like Christie, Jeb Bush. He's sort of become sort of this establishment guy. You know, just, you know, I feel like even in the course of um, the last few months and in 2010 and throughout 2011, he was the one Republican I thought, you know, in going to events was who could, you know, make Republicans cry, you know, from a rhetorical perspective, uh, from a send a tingle down your leg perspective. He was the Republican Obama. And now um, I think there was a Washington Post poll that came out this week or just yesterday, actually that had Rubio's approval rating among Republicans at 43%, um, down from 54% last year. So, you know, that's those are not good numbers for him. And I think you saw that yesterday when the Rubio people put out that really hard statement after the DOMA ruling. Um, you know, you didn't see a lot of Republicans coming out very hard um, because it's sort of like a tricky path to navigate, you know, given the country's opinions about same-sex marriage. And yet Rubio put out this very sort of tough statement coming down in favor of marriage being between a man and a woman. And I think one of the reasons they did that is because they realized they needed to <laughs> sure. really help with the Republican base right now. Despite the fact that there's a substantial gay population in Miami. Uh, so I found that to be a, a curious move as well. I'm Jeff Smith, filling in for Josh King here on Polyoptics. I'm talking to Peter Hamby from CNN and Dave Catanese from The Run 2016. I'm going to take issue with a little bit of what you said, though, Peter. Yeah. I don't believe that Marco Rubio was ever really genuinely a Tea Party guy. I think that was more of a posture. If you go back and look at his career as he rose up through the ranks mm -hmm. in, in Florida politics and particularly as speaker, he seemed to be very much an establishment guy. And so my take isn't so much that he's now abandoned the Tea Party, but more that he sort of used the Tea Party uh, when it was convenient for him, when that's where the running room was against Charlie Crist, and then sort of embraced it briefly and is now sort of going back to his political roots. Yeah, well, I think you can make the same argument with Ted Cruz, too. Like, this was, a, this was a George Bush guy. You know, this is not sort of, you know, you know out, of the, out of the weeds, grassroots person. I'm, I'm sort of more talking about the perspective of um, what these activists say about these guys. Sure. Um, but I do agree with you. Yeah, I mean, he sort of, he, ca he figured out what the energy was you know, along with Jim DeMint, and they, they kind of rode the wave. So is it possible that the only policy recommendation made by the Republican National Committee's autopsy report or, or whatever, uh, the only recommendation they made was that they've got to pass immigration reform, and that could end up being a death knell for any candidates who heed that recommendation? Well, I mean, I think it, it could certainly be. I think it's, you know, too soon to tell how hungry the Republicans are going to be to just want to win versus, you know, playing the, you know, what what drives primary politics, which is who is the furthest to the right. I mean, to be to be frank, though, if you look at history, Republicans usually settle on the, 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 the more moderate establishment mm -hmm. candidate. It's sort of the primary that they have to go through um, that, that beats them up, whether it be Mitt Romney or, you know, John McCain, you know, you can go back to Bob Dole. They usually do end up not with the right winger. So, you know, in talking to, to Rubio allies, they believe, I mean, even with all the bad polling information, even with how they're getting hit by the right, with activists and talkers, you know, taking this, this gamble on spearheading this legislation, that the first thing they wanted is they wanted this to be done this year, the furthest point away from the next time he faces re-election, whether it be in Florida or nationally. Um, and, you know, they, the second thing is he's going to be able to stand on a stage and say that he was able to do something. And 
Um, they believe, I think the backers of Rubio believe, that he is still the guy that can unite the only person sort of in the field that can unite the Tea Party wing and the establishment wing. You know, Rand Paul makes the big donors, the big sort of, you know, adult serious guys in New York um, tremble a little bit at the, at the thought of what he may do on foreign policy on some of these issues. Um, you know, Ted Cruz, you have a lot of people that I roll about about what he's doing, whether it be posturing, whether he's, you know, he's, he just is Dr. No on everything, you know. Then you have the right that's very wary of, you know, Chris Christie. Um, you know, so... In the end, they believe um, that that he will be able to be the last guy standing. I think at this very early vantage point, if you push them, how'd that work uh, out for Tim Pawlenty? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if you could compare it to, to Tim Pawlenty. I think Rubio is still getting a pass, yeah, more than other people. Oh, more than. Uh, someone else would be if they were the face of immigration reform. If you sure. listen to Rush, if you listen to Hannity, they're, they're not on board for immigration. There's no question about that. But they're not launching the direct assault that they could be. And I think, you know, in calls to early state activists, they don't like the immigration bill, but they're not ready to throw down the hammer on Rubio like they would, you know, a, a John McCain um, or, you know, another sort of rock I know that they that they use to describe Republicans that aren't in line, and I think he gets a pass because, he, as Peter was saying, like this guy is supposed to be their Barack Obama. He's a fresh face. He's young. You know, he's a minority. He's from a, a critical state, and you know, there's they want to win. They're they're going to want to win at a certain point, and I think that that's not in the minds of every at the at the most ardent social conservative or, or hardcore Republican activist. But I think it weighs on a lot of a, a good swath of the party. I agree with Dave. I mean, I think the you know what happens with this bill in the House is going to be parsed by all kinds of people in Washington. Rubio is going to get flamed from the right, you know, on this, you know, if he runs for president, but. He can stand up on a stage and say, even if even if the bill doesn't work, um, I tried to do something, you know. And he can sort of, you know, develop some kind of excuse as to why it failed or whatever. I tried to do something, you know. If it didn't pass, you know, he can say, well, you know, it wasn't conservative enough. If it does pass, he can say, I tried to make it more conservative, you know, if we're talking in the context of a primary. So I, I agree with Dave on on a lot of those points. So you talked about Dave. You talked about uh, Rubio seeming to get a little bit of a pass from the Limbaugh's of the world on this. It seems to me like Rand Paul's kind of gotten a pass too. Don't am I misremembering? But didn't he give a speech a couple months ago supporting a path to citizenship? Yeah, I mean, Rand Paul. um, I think this is part of, and I have a piece up today, sort of looking at his recent comments on the Doma ruling, where he gave one interview to a mainstream outlet, Jeff Zeleny of ABC News, where he praised. Justice Kennedy's decision and said, this is right, it should go back to the states, this is a good ruling for us, we need to get past this as conservatives, we're going to be divided on this issue. And then he goes on Glenn Beck and compares, you know, sort of throws up this possible analogy to, hey, you know, could animals get married one day? And what's going to get covered? Like, you know, all the, all the alerts I'm getting on Rand Paul now are, are about that comment. And it's muddling his message. Now, the reason I bring this up is because you know, on immigration, you're right. He did give the speech on a path to citizenship. I don't know if it was two months ago now. Um, now it doesn't seem like there's any way he's going to be able to vote for it. And, I, you know, I think you can see libertarian press that say, you know, are, are upset with him when he went to Iowa. And he said, I'm not, you know, I'm not a libertarian. I'm a I'm a libertarian-leaning Republican. And then he went out to Silicon Valley and stressed to them that he was a libertarian. 
And it's so is not he not exactly, is he not ready for prime time? Sounds like he doesn't understand the internet exists. Flip flops, but he's trying so hard to. I mean, this to me could be the fatal flaw to Rand Paul. Like the the whole reason we're interested in Rand Paul, the reason I'm interested in him, is that he seems like you know the genuine article, like the guy that's willing to say what he thinks and willing to challenge that. But I think now that he's running for president, you know, he he that that. Walking that line and being, you know, the libertarian Rand Paul and socially conservative Iowa is is, is difficult. Um, and, and you know, think, on immigration, on same-sex marriage, these are going to be thorny issues for him. And he's 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 just got a couple incidents here in a few months that I've been watching him, where you know he's he's you know he's got he's got this mangled message that active. I mean, you just can't do that anymore in our media age, where everything is recorded and parsed and interpreted and misinterpreted mm-hmm. and you can't get away with going on Glenn Beck and making a joke about hey this this ruling could make it open for animals to get married and then you know talk to ABC News and say this is a this is a serious rule you know this is a this is a smart ruling this is a good decision people aren't going to take you seriously they're going to be like where where are you and when he goes to Iowa you're going to have activists like Bob Vanderplatt standing there saying well which one do you believe yeah i mean i think i think you raise a good point how long can you go and really be the bullworth candidate can you really say what you believe i think he got a taste of of how tough that can be in 2010 when he came out and said he doubted he was very skeptical about the civil rights act uh, that it was an infringement on private property rights and was pilloried for that and then kind of backtracked on that. So right. I think, you know, he's it's going to be interesting to watch and, and see just how candid he can remain and and uh, and yet not alienate too many parts of his base. So another candidate who aspires to be the straight talker, Chris Christie, can you talk about the way that uh, his reelection here is helping him either position himself uh, for the nomination or crippling his ability to appropriately position himself. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so the Faith and Freedom Coalition had its meeting here in Washington a couple weeks ago, and that's the group that Ralph Reed, conservative, you know, evangelical activist runs. I just wanted to have conversations with the people that attended. This is sort of, you know, not emblematic of the Republican Party as a whole, but certainly, you know, there were a lot of, you know, homeschool moms and evangelicals in this crowd. Um, They, almost to a person would say he's too buddy-buddy with Obama. That word comes up all the time. And, certain, and exa- what they're referring to, of course, is you know his sort of you know um, arm-in-arm walk th- across the New Jersey coastline after Hurricane Sandy. And again, earlier this year, um, they toured you know some boardwalks in New Jersey. They, the, the Republican base perceives him as too establishment. Um, we were reading, I was just talking about Marco Rubio's poll numbers nationally. Chris Christie's poll numbers among Republicans, I think his approval rating among Republicans nationally is like somewhere around 50%, which is good, but you know, it should be a lot higher than that. Um, and I think his numbers I, in New Jersey are uh, like, they're like absurdly what, high, like what, 60, 70%. But they're uh, exactly the same among Democrats and Republicans, yes. which is pretty darn unique in this age. Right. Um, you know, and so I wrote a story out of that about how, you know, these activists, and this isn't a new storyline, these activists are sort of upset with Chris Christie. And, you know, I got some pushback on that from Christie's folks in Trenton, which surprised me because from up until now, like everything they seem to have done is geared toward the November election and beating Barbara Bono, the Democrat, and they want to rack up really big numbers and swamp her in November. Um I, I really think it's hurting him. I think he's perceived as, as an establishment guy, is friendly with Obama, and I think it's starting to penetrate a little bit. 
let's talk a little bit about um, national security. You know, in 2004, 2008, many of the most salient divisive issues split the Democratic coalition, but really unified the Republican one, you know, issues like Iraq. Uh, but it seems that as people are positioning for 16, that a lot of salient national security issues are really splitting the Republican Party, again, with Paul and Cruz on one side and then Rubio and, and I think Christie uh, on another side. Um, based on your soundings with activists in the early states, do you think the you know, the energy of the party is going to be more towards that isolationist wing or more towards the traditional, you know, hawkish wing? I mean, frankly, I, I think it's it's too soon to tell on that. I mean, I know that's a cliche, but um, but I would say first and foremost, you know, in the activists I talk to, um, you know, it, it's hard to see how foreign policy is going to be, you know, a driver, even with everything going on right now with, with Snowden and all the stuff. I mean, it, it's hard to, to envision that, you know, the policy in, in Syria right now will we'll come back and be a, a major issue in, in the 2016 primary. But I think, you know, it's unmistakable that you're seeing a dividing line with sort of the sort of the Rand Paul, uh, Ted Cruz, and then sort of almost, you know, the, it's the John McCain, you know, Lindsey Graham, Kelly Ayotte <laughs> wing of the party um, that they're, they're constantly uh, getting in, in squabbles with. But I think that, you know, I think to bet on sort of the more traditional Republican approach, uh, you know, militaristic, um, interventionist, I think that's uh, a, a, becoming a bit of a more risky bet uh, th- these days because, um, you know, I, I, I don't think people are disqualifying, um, you know, Paul and Cruz's views just on that that assumption. I, but I think, you know, t- to speak to Rand again, to the point you made before, um, you know, he doesn't want to be as uh, isolationist as his father. Uh, he, I think he tries to stress that he's not against, you know, military uh, intervention carte blanche. It's about making, you know, sort of smart strategic decisions, but he's clearly going to be labeled into that group. So it's kind of thing, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how he threads that needle mm-hmm. as well. Um, sort of, you know, sticking to, you know, the bait, like keeping his father's base intact, which, you know, is an isolationist fact, faction of the Republican Party, while also, you know, nodding to you know, a portion of the party who said, who, who are fine with, with drone strikes. Um, and that's going to be something that, that I think, you know, another, just another sliver of, of sort of the Fran Paul conundrum as he, as he navigates his way and, uh, through. And South Carolina is a big military state as well. And you know, I've, I've talked to some donors and activists down there who, while Rand may be a little more hawkish than his father, um, they still perceive of him you know, in terms of foreign policy as, you know, a non-interventionist libertarian, and they are skeptical of him because of it. Um, But back to your earlier premise about this sort of, you know, um, splitting the GOP, I'm not sure it doesn't hurt Democrats, too, if there is a sort of primary, like a contested primary, and if there's not, even if it's Hillary Clinton and somebody else. But, you know, I was out at the the Netroots Nation conference in San Jose last weekend, um, Surveillance was a big deal out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were uh, Nancy Pelosi um, got booed when she said that Snowden was a criminal. Um, people that I talked to uh, about the NSA program were you know while people there were sort of generally you know supportive of President Obama, they had their issues with him. That was one thing that was on, that was kind of 
um, non-negotiable. I think they realized that he kind of had to carry on like a lot of Bush's security policies, but it made them upset. And I think they might look toward these 2016 Democratic candidates and wonder where they are um, on these issues. And, you know, people like Martin O'Malley and Andrew Cuomo, who don't exactly have a ton of foreign policy experience and aren't deep thinkers, to my knowledge, about these things, you know, are probably going to have to answer some of these questions as well, which could be a problem for them. Maybe we could do surveillance stat. <laughs> That's um, a really geeky <laughs> joke. Jeff. Uh, Ten people got that. <laughs> I'm Jeff Smith, filling in for Josh King here on Polyoptics. I'm talking to Peter Hamby from CNN and Dave Catanese from The Run 2016. So, speaking of the Democratic, you know, uh, primary electorate, has do you think Hillary Clinton's peaked? I mean, I it feels like she's really started to lose some of the afterglow already from the time when she didn't have to politic. Are people starting to remember more of the things they didn't like about her as she enters, kind of re-enters the political fray? I mean, again, back to the Netroots Nation thing, like real quick, like a quick sampling of people. I didn't even bring this up. I said, who is your, who, who are your favorite people for 2016? A lot of people thought it's too early. Obviously, it probably is. They all mentioned Hillary Clinton. They all said Hillary Clinton. Everyone out there seemed to like Hillary Clinton. Um, I think Hillary's problem, though, she's always going to be running from this if she runs from this cautious position, right? Like she's always going to be playing defense. You know, she she has like, I still think she's going to have, you know, three to four universes of advisors, all of, you know, of different generations. There are so many people in Clinton world <laughs> that I, I can't imagine her not running a sort of very cautious campaign. And like these, this day and age, like those campaigns, you know, they can collapse on themselves and they, they frequently do. So that's sort of, that's, something. I mean, we're watching the antithesis of her campaign right now in New York City with Anthony Weiner flying by the seat of his pants, eschewing the professional political consultants in large part because they're already working for someone else. Uh, but he's basically running kind of like at the level of a city council campaign almost mm-hmm. when you talk about staff. And it seems to be going pretty well for him. And Quinn, Quinn is running this sort of cautious by the book campaign, yeah. literally by the book or don't buy the book because no one bought the book. Um, <laughs> And it seems to be hurting her. You know, um, people want authenticity. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see how I, I, I still don't see how someone beats her. But she, when you say she's hit her ceiling, I think you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, she definitely seems to be the opposite of her husband. People seem to like her better when she's governing, whereas they seem to like him better when he's campaigning and kind of fighting for his political life. Yeah, and how does Hillary, I mean, she's going to be surrounded by so many people, just like from mm-hmm. a from a mechanical standpoint every day. You know, she had Secret Service in 2008. I covered her campaign. I was with her on the plane for most of that primary fight. Um, you how, know, many people, how many people do you think vetted that first tweet? Oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, so how, how do you, it's just... I don't know. I agree with you. So so who else, Dave, you know, who's the most plausible person to emerge as the Obama candidate, the kind of person who could unite the uh, anti-Hillary, you know, wing of the of the Democratic Party? Well, Peter reported, I think it was just last week out there that, you know, Howard Dean would would consider it. And I found that really intriguing. It was somebody I had not even thought of, mm-hmm. frankly. And then I thought, what does Howard Dean sort of have to lose? Right. I mean, all these other people in the Democratic Party owe the Clinton something. Mm-hmm. Or they, they have am- future ambitions to, you know, be in the administration or a cabinet post. You know, O'Malley or Cuomo can't do it because he's from New York and Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren's, a, uh, you know, a female who probably wouldn't do it. Um, although I think, I mean, frankly, I think Elizabeth Warren 
could be the one, yeah. um, but I don't think she will. I think just watching her Massachusetts Senate race and sort of the fervor that she ignited on the left, I mean, they just adore her. Yep. And I think she could be a real threat to Hillary if, if somebody talked her into it. Um, and, and, we, and we talked a lot about the schisms in the Republican Party, but a, a primary schism in the Democratic Party that the party is going to have to deal with is, is it going to be the party of Wall Street or not? And, right. you know, her, her money, so much of her money right. is likely and to that, come from Wall Street. That's almost a populist message that blurs outside of the party, I think. I'm, I'm talking about Elizabeth Warren's on, mm-hmm. on the banks. Um, but, you know, you know, Howard Dean is an interesting, interesting possibility to me because he doesn't have much to lose. I he mean, what, what, he doesn't owe the Clintons anything. He rose through that. And he created the Netroots uh, movement. So... Um, I can't imagine why, you know, if, if he doesn't think she has, if all these other people are giving Hillary a pass, she gets in, there's got to be a progressive that gets in. The, the problem is you scratch your head and you're like, who would it be? Who doesn't want to be punished by the Clintons? You know, and who, or who doesn't owe something to the Clintons? And, and, you know, Howard Dean is the name after, you know, Peter reported it in his interview with him. That, that, that was that was very interesting to me um you know as far as being able to beat her i think that's a different question but back to your original question i you know her her star has already fallen i mean look at her polling numbers i think you see some apprehension with this ready for hillary group the sort of autonomous pack signed up to encourage her into the race you, you see the stories on that you have clinton advisors speaking on background and reporters saying we're worried that this makes her sort of the front runner again the overwhelming front runner it's going to be inevitable first female. Um, and there, there's some in the Clinton camp that are saying that that's not a good thing. They'd rather her fly under the radar. But frankly, she's not. Anything she does, whether it be a tweet or a, a germane speech to some policy group, she's going to make news. She's going to make headlines because she's Hillary Clinton. Can she sustain that for three years? Um, the media, and, and frankly, a fly above the fray without addressing the specific policy issues. I mean, is she going to have? Would would she have a more aggressive posture to Syria than Obama? I mean, it sure seems like it. How does that float with a big part of the Democratic Party? You know, we don't know yet because no one. She's not. She doesn't have to answer these questions. She's Hillary Clinton. She's in her own tier. But my question is, how long could she sustain that without with, without being dragged into the daily fray? And and. She was she proved incapable of managing the 2007 2008 freak show, and you know yes, based on that tweet, you know people are like, oh yeah, she kind of gets Twitter or whatever. Like, there's nothing to show that like her or her advisors understand the way the media landscape has so dramatically shifted in not just the last four years but the last two years. And they're going to have to. Big, br- I know you've done a lot of work on that, Peter. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Yeah, no, I just she's going to be staffed by some people who get the sort of new media Twitter environment that you know me, you, and Dave all live in, um, and sort of the speed that uh, you know stories are posted. You know, reporters now are incentivized to break news and be first in a way they were never before. Um, sometimes that means posting a story, getting a comment, and updating it later. Um, you know, some of these things existed in 2008. I remember being on the airplane with Hillary Clinton flying somewhere above Kentucky, and, you know, after Ohio, when she sort of found her voice and was liberated, she used to finally come back to the back of the plane and talk to reporters. And she would drink Blue Moon, that was her favorite beer. She would talk college basketball and be one of the guys. And AP would snap some photos 
they would hit the wire, you know, maybe an hour later when we landed, um, you know, if she would make some comments that would show up in a blog post on, you know, some embeds webpage the next morning. I mean, that stuff, there's no filter anymore. That stuff is hitting the web instantaneously. So she, you know, she can be staffed by similar people that she was staffed by in 2008, but she's really going to have some people that she trusts and who trust her, um, but who also understand the sort of pace of the media environment that we're living in. So, you know, Dave mentioned flying above the fray. Even right now in Washington, I don't know what it's like in New York, but it, it's almost insufferable how much coverage of every little thing Hillary Clinton is already doing um, is sort of dominating the media. Um, and it's just only going to get worse. When I saw that article in the Washington Post uh, this week about the two competing PACs, you know, the Ready for Hillary PAC and then another sort of super PAC that's trying to start up, the first thing I thought was uh, let the infighting begin. Yeah, and there's so much, there's so much demand for content now mm-hmm. on the media end. You know, I was talking to a Romney guy about this, you know, who's sort of reflecting on the campaign. It's not only that when Romney rolls out a you know tax plan you have to explain what's in the tax plan you have to come up with a rollout package of who advised him on the tax plan and who here's a profile of this guy and then you have to talk to the conservative media um, and then you have to like talk about a lot of process stuff too like there's just so many so much space to fill and they have to be prepared for that i'm talking to peter hamby from cnn and dave catanese from the run 2016 final question for you guys Looking out over the sort of the next six months or so um, as we get through the, the uh, Senate and House, and I don't know if there's been a vote yet on immigration or not, but uh, where do you see the field shaking out? Who is your dark horse who's really moving? I know, Dave, you've talked a little bit about Scott Walker as a guy who you feel may be best prepared to kind of unite all the wings of the Republican Party. Um, Peter, you just got back from Netroots Nation and, you know, uh, kind of got the pulse of, of progressives. Who do you see as kind of dark horses on either side who may have some momentum over the next six to 12 months? Um, I agree completely with Dave about Scott Walker. I think he, I think it's finally sort of penetrating the Washington consciousness. I mean, look, I think a lot of Washington reporters tend to write write about and puff up people who are either in the House or Senate, well, not the House, in the Senate, and also people who are staffed by consultants that live in Washington. They don't think about the popular governors out in in the Midwest, Um, John Kasich, Mike Pence, Scott Walker. But Scott Walker in particular is a guy who's actually done something that conservatives care about. He's won statewide twice. He was born in Iowa. His father was a Baptist preacher. He's evangelical. He's a hockey dad. Didn't graduate college. He's a regular guy who I think can speak to the hearts of conservatives, I don't, I don't want to step on Dave on him, but I, that's I totally agree. And then on the Democratic side, yeah, I think there's totally a plausible um, space for Howard Dean. I think he's got uh, name ID. When I was out at Netroots, he got applauded uh, more than President Obama when President Obama pumped wow. in a YouTube speech. I mean, like they still regard him as you know the sort of guiding light. Um, and yeah, he's got nothing to lose. One other person I didn't mention, and I don't know if he has ties to the Clintons, and that's my fault, but is Deval Patrick? Yeah, he has ties to the Clintons. He does, okay. He was assistant attorney general for civil rights, uh, I believe, during the Clinton administration. There you go. I was just going to say that if someone's going to run against Hillary, it's in the Democratic primary, it's either got to be a woman or an African-American. But yeah, I guess Howard Dean is my guy then. How about Charlie Crist? Yeah, (laughs) he's a true believer or liberal. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, what are your thoughts? 
Uh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a big Walker guy. Uh, you know, not endorsing him, but I just think <laughs> if 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 you're if you're buying stock, I think Rubio's price is very high, and, and Walker's is very low. You look at national polls; Walker doesn't even register. I mean, I talked to some of the national pollsters because they weren't including him yeah. in polling. Even like PPP would go into the field and not include Scott Walker, um, which I think is a mistake. I just think he's got nowhere to go but up. Um, you know. Covering the recall campaign, I think you know the recall sort of the, the fact that he was be able able to beat that back, do it by seven points, you know, in a walk, sort of I think put him in this position. I think if he wasn't, if there wasn't an attempted recall, he'd be nowhere in, in the same position as he is now. But he's got he's got a donor network. He's got he's moving all over the country. I mean, he's got aggressive schedule. He's not only going to the early primary states, he's going to Alabama. He's going to Arkansas. He's going to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. He's there to meet Republicans everywhere. I think he's running for president. I'm you know 90% and I just think, you know, he can be the outsider. We're all talking about immigration, whether it's going to pass is DOMA. I called Walker's office today because he didn't put out a statement on DOMA, and everybody was focusing on Christie and what he said. But, you know, there's no coverage on, on what Walker said, and Walker's campaign person basically told me to go buzz off. Said, well, I'm and, and not going to address this. And, well, and maybe that's the smart thing because, you yeah. know, they, they always say a souffle can only rise once. And, you know, Christie had his huge boomlet last year, and Rubio's had his boomlet, and, you know, Paul's kind of had his boomlet. And maybe it's a smart thing for Walker to do to just go to states like Alabama. He doesn't, need a, he doesn't yeah. even need a boomlet yet. He just yeah. needs to lay the groundwork. I mean, you know, he's not he's not a Marco Rubio-type speaker, but I, I think he's pretty good. I mean, in watching him on, you know, in person and watching him on on. You know, video. He's got a. He's got a very. And the only thing is, I, I'm not sure where he is on the social stuff, though. He struggled a little bit on Meet the Press when he was asked about gay marriage. Um, you know, he wouldn't talk about Doma to me today when I asked him. I think you know, but but he but he can. He sort of has the excuse right now. Is I'm focused on Wisconsin, making you know the economy move forward, and I think that will pay him dividends. Where is he on the immigration bill? Well, somebody could ask him, but they're probably not. He's not going to have to take a position on that. Um, and I think that's all to his benefit running from, I mean, I could just see him on stage, Rand and Rubio fighting over immigration, and then you got Walker saying, look, I created jobs, unemployment's down, you know, yada, 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 railing off these statistics. I'm also from a Midwest swing state, and I'm a governor, so I've done things. Um, and I just think that is a really attractive profile and as far can, as a, he can, a dark horse is concerned. And he can make the argument that he's principled. I, I was reading a, a book called More Than They Bargained For, which is about the recall fight. Um, and he just has the killer instinct. You know, he came into office and he said, I'm going to pass this bill. Democrats be damned. There are scenes in this book where he's sort of praying um, with members of the state Senate and the assembly before going out for big procedural votes or whatever. I mean, I just think he kind of speaks the language uh, of conservatives. So we've finally elected a black president. Now, can we elect a president who didn't graduate college? I mean, I mean obviously, we did that a long, long time ago. No, but that, will that hurt Walker? I mean, Rand didn't graduate college either, right? I didn't know that. I thought he went to Duke and went to med school. I, he did go to med school, but I'm not sure he finished college. Okay. We might need a fact check on this, but... Oh, well, at least Rand has the doctor thing. Right. I do. I mean, yeah. and we wrote, I wrote about this. I mean, whether a guy without a college degree could... I think, you know, it will, be, it will certainly be an issue. Someone's going to raise it, um, and he's going to have to explain why he left. The thing about Walker's story is that he left, he left only weeks before, mm-hmm. um, you know... 
dropping out. And there's some questions. I mean, Democrats have questioned that. They never had the goods on it as far as, like, why he left. Um, but, you know, that type of stuff will start to trickle out if you see, uh, as, you, as you say, uh, Scott Walker souffle rising. Um, so I think, you know, he's going to get the question, is it a, completely a disqualifier? I don't, I don't think think it is, but he better have a he better have a good answer for it. And and it you know his his because he, he I think he left to go work at the Red Cross. And some people say really is that you know you left to do that just a few weeks before you could have got your degree. Like what's the real story there? Well, hey guys, I know there are not two people in the country that are better sourced uh, <laughs> among among primary voters and, and caucus voters than, than you two. And and there are people who are following these guys uh, and everything they're saying. Uh, more closely than you are. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to inform our audience this week, and I hope to see you both soon. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot. All right. I'm Jeff Smith, wrapping up here, filling in for Josh King on Polyoptics. It's been great being with you. See you next week when Josh King will be back with us. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.